Okay, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 62. Let's read this together, starting in verse 1. The Word of God says this. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch, the nation shall see your righteousness in all kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. It can be very, very easy to get discouraged. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, we all get discouraged from time to time. Maybe you go into work on a Monday morning and you have a genuine desire to show the love of Christ to your coworkers. But then almost immediately, as soon as you get in, an issue arises which kind of takes some time and it kind of ruins your day. And because of this issue, you end up not acting in the most Christ-like way to your coworkers. And then you come home and you've allowed this issue to boil over and you don't act in the most Christ-like way with your family. And then maybe right before bed, you start to think to yourself and you pray and you say to the Lord, you say, Lord, I didn't want to be like this today. I had a genuine, genuine desire to serve you today. I had a genuine desire to show the love of Christ. And yet, I couldn't even make it one day. I couldn't even make it a few hours without falling short. And it's in moments like this when we realize just how sinful we actually are. It's in moments like this when we realize just how weak we actually are. And yet, for the Christian, despite our sinfulness... For the Christian, despite our weakness, Jesus still came here to save us. Despite our weakness, despite our sinfulness, Jesus still looks out for us. Despite our weakness, despite our sinfulness, the Lord Jesus Christ is still committed to his people. 
despite our sinfulness, despite our weakness, the Lord Jesus Christ still works unceasingly for us, unceasingly for his people. So what we're going to see here as we dive into Isaiah chapter 62, we're going to see that the Lord Jesus Christ works unceasingly for his people, unceasingly for his bride. Now, two chapters previous to this, in Isaiah chapter 60, we are told there that there will come a day in the future where a great salvation will take place one day. And what Isaiah chapter 60 is doing is it is foreshadowing Revelation chapters 5 and 7, where there we're told that there's coming a day in the future where people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will gather around the throne of God and praise God forever. And the big question at the end of Isaiah chapter 60 is who will be the one to accomplish this great salvation? And we get the answer to that in Isaiah chapter 61. We're told that it's going to be Jesus, that it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who accomplishes this great salvation. And in Isaiah chapter 61, what the Lord Jesus says there is he says that there's a twofold aspect to his overall mission, that the first time Jesus came here, he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He came to preach the gospel. And the second time he comes, he will come to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And if you look at the end of Isaiah chapter 61, if you look in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, you will see that there is marital language being used there. It says this, at the end of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, it says, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So the groom there in Isaiah chapter 61 is being spoken about right next to his bride. And we know from the scriptures that the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is constantly, constantly calling out to his bride, constantly calling out to his church. And if you're here today and you have yet to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet you're looking for reasons as to why you ought to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus, all you have to do is go back to Isaiah chapter 60 and Isaiah 61. You ought to come to the Lord Jesus Christ because a great salvation will take place one day. And Jesus, Jesus is the one to accomplish this great salvation. And you know, one of the things that's so great about the Lord Jesus is that he desires for us to come to him. Christ has a tremendous and great desire for his bride. And that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Husbands, on your wedding day, what happened was you waited and waited for that moment when your bride would start to walk down the aisle. And as she made her way towards you, what happened was anticipation started to build and build. Your heart started to beat faster and faster and faster. Why did that happen? Well, it's because you desired her. You desired your bride. And with Jesus, it's no different. Jesus desires his bride. And the reality is, is that right now what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing is he is purifying and cleansing his bride. Here's what it says in Ephesians 5, which we read earlier today. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So Christ, right now, he is sanctifying and cleansing his bride. He protects his bride. 
He looks out for his bride, and he will not rest. He will not rest when it comes to looking out for, protecting, and loving his bride. So what the text is going to get into in the first part of verse 1, here's what it says. It says, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. So recognize right off the bat, recognize who the one that's speaking to us today is. This is Jesus speaking to us. This is the Messiah, the Holy One of God, the Anointed One of God. He's speaking directly to his people, speaking directly to Zion, to Jerusalem. In our text today, when you see Zion, when you see Jerusalem, it is simply referring to those who are his, to the bride of Christ, to those who have been born again by his grace. Jesus is speaking directly to his church, and he won't stop working for his church. He won't stop working for his bride. He will not be quiet. He will not rest. He is constantly, constantly at work for his bride. You know, too often we tend to think of Christ's work as something that's in the past only. Now, it's certainly true that what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross is a once-for-all sacrifice, right? So that's a work that's been done in the past, okay? We aren't Roman Catholics, right? We don't believe that Jesus is constantly being re-crucified or something like that. So Jesus, his atoning work, he's rested from that. That work is done. But Jesus isn't just sitting back, not doing anything. No, he's an active active savior. And he's constantly at work for his bride. So let's not neglect that. Let's not forget that Jesus is constantly working, constantly working for his people. He's an active savior. He's an active savior that sustains and upholds absolutely everything. He sustains and upholds everything. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, it says this. It says that Jesus is the one upholding all things by the word of his power. And when we reference a verse like that, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, when it says Jesus is upholding all things, we need to know that all things actually means all things. He is upholding absolutely everything. He isn't just upholding things in a general sense. He's upholding everything that you could possibly imagine, from big, enormous things to every small, minute detail of life. About two months ago, I was reading a story about scientists that discovered a plethora of galaxies 11 billion light years away from the Earth. You know who the one that is sovereign over that plethora of galaxies 11 billion light years away from the Earth? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one sovereign over those galaxies. He's the one upholding them. He's the one that is sovereignly upholding Everything. I like how the Scottish Baptist pastor in the 1800s, Alexander McLaren, I like how he described the sovereignty of Christ in upholding everything. He said this. He said, The sovereignty of Christ is not metaphor nor rhetorical hyperbole. It is a literal fact. He directs the history of the world. He wields the forces of nature. He directs the march of providence. He is Lord of unseen worlds and holds the keys of death and the grave. He holds the stars in his right hand. He rebukes winds and seas, diseases and devils. He speaks and it is done. He is sovereign, 
sovereignly upholding everything. And this Jesus, this sovereign Jesus who upholds everything, he's the one speaking to us here today in Isaiah chapter 62. Look again at what he says in the first part of verse 1. He says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet. It's almost as if you can hear the passion in his voice. He will not be quiet. He will not keep silent. He will not rest. He will not be inactive. The Lord is showing here, showing his commitment to his bride, showing his commitment to his people, his commitment to Zion, to Jerusalem. He will not stop working for us. For Zion's sake, he will not rest. He is specifically upholding us and looking out for his bride. Now, what is it that Jesus does for us, for his bride specifically? Well, there are many things that Jesus does for us specifically, but one of the things that he does is he gives himself to unceasing intercessory prayer. Unceasing intercessory prayer. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. It says, he, referring to Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We also see this in John chapter 17, where Jesus in John 17, this is the night before he's about to be crucified, the night before the worst thing ever in the history of the world is about to happen. And Jesus, he's praying to God the Father. And just listen to his prayer. He says, he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Isn't that so amazing? Isn't that so amazing? The night before Jesus was about to suffer more than anybody has ever suffered, he was thinking about his bride, thinking about those who would be born again by the grace of God. And listen, we are assured of his intercession for us. He's specifically praying for us, and he's doing this right now. Right now, the Lord Jesus Christ is doing that. He's seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, praying for us. Think of that for a second. The same Jesus who bore the nails in his hands and feet, the same Jesus that left heaven willingly, came down here, lived a righteous, perfect, faithful, obedient life, that same Jesus who died and rose from the dead, that's the Jesus seated at the right hand of God praying for you, believer. And he'll continue to do this. He'll continue to pray for his people, continue to work for his bride until, until the glorious change in her condition is accomplished. That's what the text is going to get into next in the last part of verse 1. It says... Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. You know, as God works, you know what happens? Transformation takes place. As God works, transformation takes place. We see this in our Christian walk. For example, in the process of sanctification, we see in our own personal walk, we see more and more we are growing in holiness more and more, we're loving the things of God and hating the things of the world. More and more, we are loving righteousness and hating wickedness. But we also see this in a broader and greater sense in that we see the church, the bride of Christ, growing in sanctification, growing in holiness. And we ought to strive for this. It should be evident that the bride of Christ is being transformed. It should be evident that the bride of Christ is becoming more Christ-like. 
And let me just tell you, it is evident, okay? It is very evident that the bride of Christ is being transformed and becoming more Christ-like. Don't believe the lie, the lie that's out there that says that the world is more Christ-like than the church, okay? Don't believe that lie. You hear this all the time from people. People will say, maybe you're having a conversation with somebody, and they'll kind of, as a way to justify why they, why they don't come to church, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I don't go to church because uh, there's more sin in the church than outside the church. And you hear that, and you say, how in the world are you coming to that conclusion? But this is done with every single sin you could possibly think of. Every single sin you could think of, people will say things like this. So people will say, well, did you know that there is more adultery inside the church than outside the church? Or did you know that there's more sexual immorality inside the church than outside the church? Or probably the big one over the last three years was, hey, did you know that there's more racism inside the church than outside the church? And not one of those things is true. So don't believe that lie that's out there that says that the world is more Christ-like than the church because it's certainly false. And yet we've all heard people say things like this. We've all heard people say things like that. And you know what those people who say things like that, you know what they're guilty of? They're guilty of slandering the bride of Christ. That is not a good thing to be guilty of. That is a very bad thing to be guilty of. What Jesus is doing in his first verse here, Jesus is showing that for those whom he has saved, they'll experience transformation. And ultimately, this transformation will be complete when we get our glorified bodies. Like how Calvin summed up this first verse in Isaiah chapter 62. He said this, he said, Jesus will not be slack in the performance of his duty and will not cease to speak till he encourages the hearts of believers by the hope of future salvation. The Lord continues here in verses two and three, continues speaking to Zion, continues speaking to his bride, to the church. And he says this, in verse two, he says, the nations shall see your righteousness in all kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. So you see what's being illustrated here in verses 2 and 3? The picture given is that of the church being the royal crown that's to be placed on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Zion, the bride, Jerusalem, the church, is the royal crown, the glorious diadem that's to be placed on Christ's head. And here we're actually told that Jesus is holding this diadem in his hand meaning he's protecting us, meaning we are under his divine protection. Why is he protecting us? Why is he looking out for us? Well, it's because as his bride, he loves us, and we are precious to him. We are precious, precious in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what it's like, the way how Jesus sees his church? It's like that of a jeweler. So if you could picture in your mind a jeweler who has made it his life's work to search after precious diamonds. And he's just constantly searching after precious diamonds. And in one day, he finds the precious diamond that's out there. And he takes it and he's just constantly looking at it, constantly gazing at it, seeing how precious it is in his sight. 
knowing what it's worth to him. That's what it's like with Jesus. That's how Jesus sees his bride. We are precious, precious in his sight. He views us as his prized possession. Nothing makes the Lord Jesus Christ happier than having his bride. Think about that for a second. Think about that the next time you're feeling depressed or sad. Think, believer, those in here who have come to saving faith in Jesus, the next time you're feeling depressed or sad, think about how it is that the Lord Jesus Christ sees you. You are precious, precious in his sight. You know, in every other religion, in every other religion, you are left wondering how it is that God sees you. Not so in Christianity. Isn't that so interesting? Isn't it so interesting that all these false religions out there, okay, the adherents of these religions, they'll say, well, God sees me great. If there's anybody out here who God sees as good, it's definitely me, okay? It's Gandhi, number one, Mother Teresa, and then I'm three or four on the list. But then when you talk to those people and you say, hey, are you sure about that? At first, they'll say, yeah, I'm sure. You say, no, 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 are you really sure about that? They'll say, well, I guess I'm not really sure. I guess nobody can be really sure. And then that's when we respond and we say, no, the Christian can be sure. Because in Christianity, it's literally the exact opposite, right? We know that there's nothing good in ourselves to bring before God, say, look at how wonderful I am. And yet we also know that because of what Christ has done in saving us, we know that we are precious, precious in the sight of, of God. God sees us as a precious, precious bride of his son. Did you know, did you know that you, believer, you are actually a gift given from God the Father to God the Son? So what it says in John chapter 6, verse 37, it's actually pretty clear here. The Lord Jesus Christ there, he says this, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. So Zion the bride, Jerusalem the church, is given by God the Father to God the Son as a gift. I don't know what the best Christmas gift you've ever gotten in your life was. For me, when I was nine, my twin brother and I, we begged and begged our parents for a Sega Dreamcast. Sega Dreamcast was a video game system that came out in October 1999. And December 1999 just went to our parents and said, Mom, Dad, please get us a Sega Dreamcast. And they kind of did what parents do. You know, they said, oh, I don't know. We probably won't get it. It's really expensive. And then, lo and behold, Christmas morning, 1999, we opened up a gift and there's a Sega Dreamcast. And there was nothing in the world at that moment that could have made my nine-year-old self happier than having a Sega Dreamcast. So you take something like that, the joy that a child has opening up a gift that he or she really wanted, and then multiply that by a trillion, and then maybe you get a small glimpse of the way that it is that Jesus views and sees his bride. He sees his bride as precious in his sight. And what he does for his bride is he gives her a new name, a new identity. That's what it says there in the middle of verse 2 when it says, you shall be called by a new name. And that's what it's going to tell us in verse 4. It says in verse 4, it says, you shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. 
but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. So he tells us here, he says, you shall no more be termed forsaken. This is, uh, this is kind of the big thing that's going on here in the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, what's going on is uh, the people of Israel, they are in Babylonian captivity. Okay, they're in exile. They've rebelled against God. They're engaging in all sorts of idolatry. They're going through the motions in their worship of God, and God scatters them. And as a result of them being scattered, the people of Israel, Zion, here's, what, here's the claim that they make against God. It says in Isaiah 49, verse 14, it says, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. So that was the claim from the people against God. God, you've forsaken me. God, you've forsaken me. But that's not the case here. God is making it clear that he doesn't do that. He's making it clear that he does not abandon his people. Jesus does not abandon his bride. You know, often, often people want to look and claim that you, Christian, have been abandoned, that you, Christian, have been forsaken. Make no mistake about this. When you get the call from the doctor that says you have stage five cancer, says you have three or four months to live, you know what the world does? The world looks at you, and maybe some people show sympathy, but deep down, so many are saying, aha, do you see that? This person, this man, this woman, he or she trusts in God, and look at what's happened. This God must have forsaken him or her. This God must have abandoned him or her. But no, that's not the case. He won't forsake us. He'll never give up on us. He's with us no matter what. We belong to him. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It says here, it says, instead of being called forsaken and desolate, it says instead we'll be called my delight is in her and we'll be called married. And if you look at the footnote in your ESV, you'll see that the words here, these Hebrew words for my delight is in her, is a Hebrew word, hepzibah, the Hebrew word for the, Lord, uh, for the word married is the word beulah. So Jesus takes us from being called forsaken and desolate, and now we're called Hepzibah. We're called Beulah. And those names, Hepzibah and Beulah, they aren't just names that sound cool or something. These are names that have significance. And these two names, what they're doing is they're pointing forward, pointing forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where on that day, all sin will be gone completely. On that day, we'll have perfect fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. On that day, we'll see him face to face, and it'll be awesome. It'll be amazing. These names, Hepzibah and Beulah, these names accurately describe the status of Christians right now. These names accurately reflect our relationship with the Lord right now. So keep that in mind. Keep that in mind the next time you want to reminisce in a positive way on your life prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. What am I trying to get at here? I'm not saying that it's a bad thing to reminisce on your life prior to coming to faith in Jesus. In fact, it's actually a good thing if you're doing it in a God-honoring way, where you look back at your life prior to coming to faith in Jesus and you say, God, thank you so much for saving me. 
thank you, Lord, so much for setting your grace upon me because I know that I was a wretched sinner. I know that people around me, yeah, maybe they thought I was a good person, but I know when I stacked myself up to your word, I know that I deserved for you to strike me dead and to send me to hell forever. So thank you, God, so much for your saving grace that you set upon me. So that's a good way that you reminisce and look back on your life prior to coming to faith in Jesus. But don't look back on your life prior to coming to faith in Jesus and long for those days and miss those days. So, for example, don't go to your 10, 20, 30-year high school reunion and see your old high school friends that you used to do all these sinful things with and say things like, oh, those were the days. Those were the days. If only we could go back. Don't do that because those weren't the days, right? Those weren't the good old days. The good old days are now since you've been saved by Christ. These are the good old days, not those days prior to you coming to faith in Jesus. And the Lord Jesus, what he does for us here is he hammers the point home that he's given us a new name. He's given us new names. He calls us now Hepzibah, calls us Beulah. That's what he's going to continue to hammer home here in verse 5. He says this. He says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. So you see the comparison there in verse 5? The way that Jesus views his bride, the way that he views the church, is the same way in which newlyweds view each other. The joy that newlyweds have for one another is the same joy that Jesus has for his bride, for his church. And he won't stop working for his bride He won't stop until this joy is fully, 100% accomplished. He doesn't stop working for us. And he assures us that he will, in fact, do what he said that he'll do. Look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. He says this. He says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So there's a question here at the beginning of verse 6 where it says, I have set watchmen. And the question is, well, who are these watchmen? Who is that referring to? Well, I am of the opinion that the watchman here in verse 6 is referring to every single person in here who has been born again by the grace of God. Every single person in here who has come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are these watchmen that's being spoken about here. We are constantly to be on the lookout, acting as watchmen, constantly ensuring that the church is being faithful to the word of God. All of us in here are to never, never be silent. We are to keep the Lord in remembrance. We're supposed to give him no rest as it says there in verse 7. Verse 7 says, it says, give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So all of us in here are to not give God any rest. Don't give him any rest. Meaning, remind God of his promises. Not that he needs our reminding, okay? Not as if he's capable of forgetting or anything like that. But God, he wants us to know his promises, and he wants us to pray in a way that shows that we fully expect his promises to happen. 
You know, we, we do this often without even really realizing it. For example, when you pray for the salvation of lost people you know, you are praying according to the promises of God because God has clearly promised in his word that he will, in fact, save sinners. But so often when we pray, it can feel like we don't really know what we're doing, right? So often when we pray, it could feel as if we've just memorized a script and we're just saying the same old things back to God. And by the way, if you've ever felt as if you don't even know how to pray, don't feel bad because even the Apostle Paul felt that way. But when that happens, when it feels as if we don't know how to pray, when it feels as if we're being stagnant in our prayer life, it is always a great idea to pray the scriptures. And we are very blessed here because we have a pastor who constantly tells us the importance of praying through the scriptures. And it's a tremendous blessing to do this. And you don't pray through the scriptures in a robotic way, but you pray through the scriptures so that it moves you in deeper, deeper worship of God. So what we often do during a pastoral prayer Right? So, for example, if we were to go to Psalm 93, which we were just praying from before together as a church, and I come to Psalm 93, verse 2, where it says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. I come here, and it moves my heart, moves my soul in worship of God, where say, God, thank you for the fact that your throne is from all eternity. Thank you, God, for the fact that you've always existed. Or if I'm praying for my lost cousin, for example, I could come to Psalm 93, verse 2, and I could say, God, would you show my cousin, would you show my cousin that your throne is established from a vault, that you are from everlasting? Would you show my cousin your power? Or if I'm praying for my children, which, by the way, all of us in here need to be praying for the salvation of our children every single day. But if I'm praying for the salvation of my children specifically, I come here, say, God, would you please show my daughters, please show them that your throne is established from of old, that you are from everlasting. And when we pray like this, what we do is we remind God of his promises. And that's one of the ways in which we act as watchmen, reminding God. And keep in mind, when we pray, God listens to us and he hears us. And that's a tremendous blessing. When we pray, God hears us. He listens to us. He always, always hears the prayers of his people. And he always uses these prayers to accomplish his promises. What are some of these promises given specifically to his people? Well, look at what it says in verses 8 and 9. It says this. It says, The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. So the Lord swears here. He swears by his right hand and by his mighty arm, by the arm of his strength. He swears by himself, meaning this is 100% assured. Nothing's ever been more assured of than this. He tells us that for Zion, for his bride, no enemy will take anything from us. No enemy will ever defeat us. Instead, what will happen is our enemies, who happen to be Christ's enemies, instead, they're the ones 
will be defeated. Revelation chapter number 19 shows us what will happen to the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what it says in Revelation 19. This is the Apostle John under inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. He says this. He says, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike down the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God. You see, when that happens, when the Lord Jesus Christ breaks open the sky, descends on a white steed with his garments dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies, when that happens, all will know that he's the Lord of everything. On that day, what will happen is the Lord Jesus Christ, he will gather everyone who's ever existed to himself, and he will separate them into two categories. There'll be the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he will say to the sheep on his right, he will say, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he'll say to those on his left, to the goats, he will say, depart from me. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Every knee will bow before him on that day. And when that happens, when that day happens, what we will do, Christian, what you will do, is you'll eat and drink and praise and glorify God with all your brothers and sisters in Christ, as it alludes to there in verse 9. Now, the question is, the question is, are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day when the Lord Jesus Christ will gather everybody to himself and separate everybody into either a category over here, the sheep, or category over here, the goats? You need to be ready for it. We all need to be ready for it. It's what the last three verses are about. Here's what it says in verse 10. It says, go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. How is it that we as Christians, how is it that we prepare the way for the people, as it says there in verse 10? Well, the main way we do that is by telling others the gospel. We go out and we tell people just how holy God is. We go out and we tell people that because of their sin and wickedness, they are justly under the wrath of God. And we tell them that, quite frankly, God right now in this moment would be perfectly just to strike them dead and to send them to hell forever because that's how serious sin is in the sight of God. We tell them about the holiness of God, and we also tell them about the goodness and the patience of God. That God, in his grace, that he sent his son, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ left heaven, came down here, lived a righteous, perfect life. Then he went to a cross. And on the cross, what happened was the wrath of God 
the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And he bore that wrath upon his shoulders for all those who would believe in him. And then he died on that cross. Didn't stay dead, though. He rose victoriously from the dead. Three days later, affirming every single thing that he said would happen. And the Bible makes it so incredibly simple, so simple. Repent and believe in Jesus. Repent and believe in Jesus. So we go out, we tell people that, and that's the way we prepare the way for the people. That's how we lift up Christ as our banner for the people. And listen, the Lord Jesus Christ will be lifted up. He will be successful. That's why it says there in verse 11, at the end of it, it says, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So you see, this is certain. This is certain. He will accomplish salvation. He will bring his reward with him. He'll bring with him his recompense. And Zion, his bride, on that day, what will happen is we'll be given even new names on that day. Yes, we're already called Hephzibah. We're already called Beulah. And yet, on that day, what will happen is we'll be called, as it says in verse 12, we'll be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. We'll be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Praise God for that. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to Isaiah chapter 62? Well, for the unbeliever, I think it's pretty simple. You need to ask yourself, what will I be called on that day? And you need to know, if your faith is not in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not be called any of these things. You won't be called Hephzibah, you won't be called Beulah, and you certainly won't be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. You won't be called sought out, you won't be called a city not forsaken. So unbeliever, ask yourself, what will I be called on that day? You don't want to be called something else. No, you want to be called what Jesus has told us here. So unbeliever, respond by coming to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, what about for believers? What about for those of us in here who God has saved by his grace? How do we respond to Isaiah chapter 62? Well, when we recognize that Jesus is not resting, when we recognize that Jesus is constantly working for us, then what it should cause in us is a greater motivation to serve him. Now, we don't have this motivation as a way to earn points before him or anything like that. But we see the Lord working constantly for his bride and causes us to want to work for him. And we work for him in a way that's pleasing in his sight. And by working for him, we consider it a great privilege to work for the Lord. It is a tremendous privilege to do work for the Lord. It's a tremendous privilege that he allows us to engage in work that ultimately he uses for his own glory. So let's not take that privilege for granted. Let's not take for granted the blessing that it is to work for the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, just that this has always been the plan your plan from the foundation of the world to send Jesus for us. We thank you, God, for, for the picture that we're given here, that Jesus, of Jesus in the church, the husband and the bride. We thank you, Lord, 
that, that the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is constantly, constantly at work for us. We thank you, God, that, that he doesn't stop working for us. We thank you, God, that, that you're upholding everything. Thank you, God, for your grace. God, we, we thank you that one day, one day in the near future, the Lord Jesus Christ will break open the sky and come back. And Lord, we long for that day. We long for that day when, when all these names that are given here, when there are, every single one of them will be applied to us in, uh, in full, Lord. So, God, we long for that day. And yet at the same time, God, we, we pray, we pray that you would save sinners. Pray, God, that there would be more people that are called Hepzibah and Beulah, sought out, a people redeemed, a city not forsaken. So, God, we pray for lost people we know, and we specifically pray for lost people in here today, God. Pray that you would cause them to be born again by your grace this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.